episode of the Good Newscast. It's always great to be with you. Today we're going to talk about um, why does moralism, we'll talk a little bit more about what we mean by that, why does moralism sell so well in the church? What is so attractive about it, if it is? What's so appealing about it? Um, on the surface, it seems like moralism would not be attractive to anyone. Right. Uh, it, it would seem like it would repel people from churches. Um, and yet there is some surprising realities, at least to my experience in ministry, regarding what people actually demand uh, mm-hmm. more so than other things and what attracts them and what uh, repels them. To me, there's some su- surprising realities there. So um, throw it to Jeff here first, doing ministry a lot longer than me. Why do you think, Jeff, that uh, moralism sells so well in the church? Yeah, so I think there's a great, you know, Luther probably says it best when he says that the default mode of the human heart is self-justification. So uh, our natural uh, desire, our natural need, our natural pursuit, our natural obsession is to justify ourselves before God, before others, before ourselves, before uh, the real Big Ten laws or any made-up law that we've had. Um, and so if that is the human condition, the answer is right there, right? The human condition is I need to uh, prove myself. I need to uh, justify myself. I need to make myself acceptable. I need to uh, be worthy of love and acceptance Again, uh, whether it's directly like we're consciously saying before God, that's the primary issue. But we could say, I need that before others. I need that before myself, self-respect. The self-image language, therapy language today kind of touches on that. Having a good self-image, that's like the most important thing that people say, as long as I accept myself, right? So this sense of acceptance, the sense of approval, Uh, That's all justification language. That's all like the need to be recognized and affirmed to be somebody, to be enough. Um, The emotion of condemnation is called shame, and that's that primal emotion, that painful feeling or experience of not being enough. So that even touches on justification. So Everybody today is obsessed with uh, not only the need to justify themselves, but also escaping the pain of not shame. Uh, So I think that explains a lot. I can tell you from years and years of ministry experience, uh, I have never had anybody come up to me and say and complain about me preaching Jesus too much. Uh, well, I should say it this way, preaching the law too much. Mm-hmm. It's more about preaching Jesus too much. Mm-hmm. I've had literally people tell me, I, I need more law. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, less Jesus, more law, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, there's so much in this discussion, but I think that's how I would initially get mm-hmm. us started. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you think about this from from the ground you think um, what if you if you were just trying to think in theory what do most people want out of church on Sunday uh, what are they looking for what are they demanding from the sermon and the service 
Um, there's there's a popular idea I think in the church that that we would say, oh, they don't want to hear anything about like how to live their life. Right. You know, that's what we would say. We'd say yeah. no. Which you'll bring this text up in a minute, but to use the language of scripture, like their itching ears uh, want to hear. They don't want to hear that. They're, right. they're not coming on Sunday. You know, if you just gave them what they want, if you just preach the sermons they want, whoever they is, it would be nothing about themselves, nothing about their Christian walk, nothing about how they're supposed to live, nothing about the do's and don'ts of Christianity. They don't want anything to do with that. All they want is to hear about the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Right. And then I would say in my experience in the church that the past 10 or 15 years doing ministry, I would, I would disagree with that idea. Correct. I would, I would say, I, and I would disagree with it to the point of saying, actually, I think I know how to build a mega church pretty easily. Yeah. There's an X factor um, that, that, you know, you're either a good preacher or a, a great preacher. There's an X factor there for sure that you can't control. Sure. But outside, let's say you're an amazing preacher. Let's say the best preacher ever comes to me and says, like, I want to build a mega church. What do I do? I would say two things. One, have amazing music. You need to have the most high level music there is. That's for a different podcast. But then I would say two, I would say every Sunday you need to preach messages that are highly practical about what your listeners need to be doing and not doing the following week. Yeah. Again, you would think that the idea is that, no, 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 the way you get the masses to come is don't tell them how to live. Don't tell them what to do, right? Um, I would say the opposite. I would say, no, actually, I think that our natural itching ears, all we want is give me more laws and rules to yeah. the point that the Ten Commandments is not even enough, yeah. right? Like we want to hear our preachers um, and our pastors' ways of life that they've even created that work for them. Yeah. So it's like we not only <laughs> want all the rules of the Bible again and again and again to show us what to do and not do, but we even want these um, extra biblical ideas and lessons and commands for how to live and what to do and how to beat sin and all these sorts of things. So the point there is I'm saying that in my experience, it's actually been an interesting opposite. Now, I know scripturally that it's because the laws written on our hearts, we're these moral beings and the gospel, the idea of grace is foreign to us. It's foreign to our flesh. It is, it's not natural. It's outside of us. It's this foreign message that comes across the sea, so to speak, um, that we weren't looking for. It's very hard for us to, to fully grasp and digest that we would be loved and whole and complete and, and worth and worthy before God by grace. Yeah. What is so natural to us is what can I do? What can I not do? What else? What else? What else? You know, that worked. That didn't work. I need something new. So I'd say that's today how you build a megachurch is like if I had the greatest preacher ever, I'd say get high level music. You need that. In one sense, that's 99% of it. But then that other 1% is moralism. Just be like a high functioning moralist. 
and you'll probably get the masses. Is there any particular, I don't know, there seems to be, uh, there's trends of moralism, right? Mm -hmm. There's trends that uh, some kind of technique or law or step or uh, experience or, you know, like accountability seems to be a big one today or authentic, Mm -hmm. right? Is there different trends of moralism that you've seen? The first thing that comes to my mind is the daily, how do you daily, and it's really not even daily because I think that sometimes we get in the evangelical church, um, we're neurotic. So it's more, it's like less your daily walk with God and like your hourly walk with God. Hmm. I think that that's, to me, that's the biggest, if, if the preacher asked me, okay, when you say moralism, like what specifically should I, should I focus on like thou shalt not steal, you know, right. like what should it be? I would say, no, the main thing is on repeat, talk about how your listeners can um, know, which is key, know and sense and feel uh, that they are keeping in step with God minute to minute and hour to hour. So this sense of activating him, tapping into him, communing with him, connecting with him, knowing that uh, you're in his will or knowing... Yep. Knowing that he loves you and accepts you and knowing that uh, he's here and at work and you're a part of it or not a yeah. part of it. So it's a real hyper vigilance, a real hyper spiritual vigilance, which yeah. kind of lends itself too, though, to the, the opposite, right? So when when it seems to happen at some other place, you can just sense the, the spiritual FOMO, right? Yeah. Oh, man, like... Asbury, remember, yeah, or what was yeah. the school? Was it Asbury? Yeah, yeah. Asbury. where there seems to be, oh, God's doing something there, yeah. and and everybody that's real attuned to trying to be as intimate and connected and in in the realm of the spirit, um, it looks like it's happening over there. I've got to get over there. I can't yeah. miss that out. Yeah. And if it is happening over there, why is that happening over there? Yeah. What's happening there that I'm not doing or what's happening over there that I need to do? Yeah. Um, I would agree. I agree that there's always been uh, this sense uh, for just a general drip pan word, experiencing God, this connecting with God, this uh, communing with God that instead of relying upon union with Christ being the basis for communion, there's this, this law, this moralistic spiritual laws and spiritual disciplines have now replaced union with Christ, uh, to fueling your experience and fueling your sense of connectedness and acceptance and love and being blessed and God's at work and God will work. Mm -hmm. He will work here and he will use you. Um, that seems to be the, in my, in my tradition, in my background, that's always was paramount. Mm-hmm. Then the next thing that went into is some form of life change. You know, you need a life change. Like you re- need some real life change, some real holiness in an area, and then it's fix this area, yeah. spiritually improve in that area. And so some of it seems more experiential and uh, intuitive you know, kind of moralism, mm-hmm. laws, and another of it, just very practical to like, here's five steps to save your marriage when your marriage is done. Yeah. Here's 10 ways to, you know, be a better steward of money. Mm-hmm. Here's how you parent exactly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. 
interesting. Which all of that is, none of this is to throw out, you know, like I think of the verse in Hebrews, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Yeah. It's that I think that all of those realities get emphasized to the expense of the, um, uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Ephesians. We focus and emphasize that. That's probably not the best way to say it, but we put that up there before, before the church at the expense of, and also remember you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Right. Right. So I think that, that functionally, a lot of times broader evangelicalism, we wake up not really believing that we are united to Christ already. Yeah. You know, uh, we are already filled with the Holy Spirit. We, we wake up justified. We, you wake up justified after having not done anything, yeah. you know, which I think is by design, by God's design, sleep and, you know, <laughs> passing out and doing nothing. Dying. Yeah. Essentially rising. dying and rising, yeah. you know. Well, one of my seminary professors said one time, you know, about sleep, it's like this dying and rising pattern every single day. But you wake up from doing nothing, and, and again, the, the natural op- operating system is already revving up to say, like, certainly you can't be near to God already. You haven't done anything. Right. Certainly you can't have peace today in your relationship with God and know that everything's okay. Know that everything's okay between you and God, your friends. Yeah. You certainly can't know that yet. You haven't done anything. Yeah. Which is why I do think, I mean, I, I know this is getting into like potentially, definitely speculation, not, yeah, more speculation. I'm speculating here, but if I had to guess, it's like maybe that's why the evangelical church seems to only value Bible reading as long as it's done like before sunrise, you know? Like, <laughs> right. I, I have like right. never, I, I, I mean, I feel like I've never heard any serious communication about Bible reading that happens after breakfast. You know, it's like all of your Bible reading at lunch is worthless. Yeah. You know, and it's because, well, you, you started your day far from God and then you just kept walking away from God and he was just, you know, being like, yeah. where are you going? And you're getting out of step with my will and my love for you is kind of yeah. waning. And, and oh, you're no. making decisions. You don't have confidence that he's leading you now. And Right. I think that most people yeah. wake up with that operating system going full, full yeah. war. And therefore, it's like the morning is this time of like, I got to get back. Yeah. I got to get. So the point here is not to say that there is no reality of draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right. Of course, like ask and you'll receive. And if right. you don't ask, don't respect, don't expect to receive. Right. <laughs> However, I would add into that. Thank God that he blesses for, for every one time I ask, I get 10 things. Yeah. And, and we miss that, you know, like we, we miss that other piece to this whole reality. What if, what if the spirituality, what if your spirituality, your relationship with God, connecting with him, um, even areas of life change and areas that you want God to work and in your job, what if it all, what if it all began from a place of it's done right? and now because you are loved, because you are accepted, because you are justified, because you have the spirit. Uh, because you have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies that Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection and his present active reign, it's finished, it's done, that now you ask for 
what's been done mm-hmm. and you are energized and move out to do things for their own sake mm-hmm. because they're good mm-hmm. for their own sake. Right. In other words, you start loving people for their own sake, not to use them as a way to get acceptance and to be justified and to get their approval. But because you are already approved, you now just go around loving and blessing others. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, because you were made to do that, so it's thrilling. Mm-hmm. Two, uh, they were made to be loved, so that's thrilling. And it's done for the reasons and the means and the ways that God had set things up, as opposed to now your job is a, a tool to bring you acceptance and to bring you validation or success in life. Uh, your kids, you now put all that pressure on them that they've got to perform a certain way. Uh, this is a game changer when you turn your justification into something that Jesus has done for you and actually believe it when you get up every day yeah. and actually believe it in interacting with God and now wanting to read the Bible and get mm-hmm. to know and grow in the one who loves you so. Mm-hmm. Um, and to love others, not because you need them, but because you just love them. Mm-hmm. And to do your job, not because you, in a sense, need to get a God from it, mm-hmm. justification, but because it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And you get to do it because you like it right. for the thrill of it. I mean, how many of us love... You know, those of you that are athletes or you, you like the Michael Jordans and you like the excellence because it's just thrilling to see. I can't believe somebody can do that. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But that's the way life is supposed to be, mm-hmm. to be thrilled that it could just be done. It's mm-hmm. exciting mm-hmm. as opposed to the pressure and the anxiety of, you know, why are sports psychologists so popular today? Because people are cracking under the pressure. Mm-hmm. In every realm, mm-hmm. whether it's in athletics, uh, whether it's just in living life today, mm-hmm. the, uh, the weight of trying to justify your existence every moment of every day, checking your spiritual pulse is killing people. Right. Yeah, you do. That, that, the uh, high-level athlete is such a good illustration because I wonder this. There's an incredible uh, documentary series on Netflix called Untold. And one of them is about uh, Marty Fish, I think, who he was like the number one American tennis player at one point in his career and uh, had a mental breakdown. And they don't really get into the specifics of like what his thoughts were, because he, he talks about like, my thoughts, these thoughts would come, these thoughts. And they don't get specific on that. Hmm. But of course, it seems obvious that it's probably related to the pressure he was under in tennis. I mean, yeah. that's what the whole documentary is about. But when you watch it, I think I'm like, dude, what? Like, what? could make you it doesn't make sense because you go dude you're a multi 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 millionaire um you are married to a woman you love you get to travel around and play tennis and practice tennis and fly in private jets and eat the best food and you made it yeah compete at the highest level like who cares if you lose the upcoming matches or whatever like you're financially set for life your kids are set like you have stuff for your grandkids financially like You've made it. It's over. It's done. But it, again, it, it goes into that like internal drive we have that like, you know, Rockefeller, I think, uh, at least allegedly was asked like, how much money is enough? And I think he's like one more dollar. Mm-hmm. That's how we are with our sense of justification. Like how much, 
how much tennis success is enough? And it's like, well, the next year's championship. You see that with Urban Meyer in his untold documentary. He wins a national championship, and before he hits the locker room to celebrate, he's already texting staff about the upcoming recruiting class for next year. It's like, how many championships enough? One more. So we have this internal sense that we know in ourselves we're not enough and left to ourselves we're not justified, and because it's true. Yeah. It, left to ourselves, we are not enough. We are not justified by who we are and what we do. So doesn't it make absolute sense then that moralism would sell? Exactly, because it feeds right yes. into what we're already asking, which is like, what can I do to justify myself, to be enough, to be done? I mean, Paul talks over and over again. He says this it's easy. I mean, I, there's a, a giant of a theologian, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson. He says, it's the easiest thing to do. It's what everybody wants. Mm -hmm. It's what Paul's talking about in Timothy when he's telling Timothy, he says, listen, everybody's going to want to gather around people to tell them what their itching ears want mm -hmm. to hear. How many of us realize that what he's actually referring to is moralism? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we want to be told how to improve, right. get better, do more, be more, because we're, we're obsessed. We need to be justified. But what if it's done? What if it's finished? Yeah. You already have it. And I can't tell you how many people, though, that I've talked to when I've actually said that, that get scared. Right. Because this is what they tell me. I don't know how to live that way. Right. How do you live that way? That takes away every motivation I've ever had. Right. I don't know how and why I'd want to get up. I don't know how and why I would like want to take care of my family or do well in anything if I'm already justified. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Yeah. Fear of punishment, hope of reward, the primary motivation for most Christians today. Yeah. But that is an ungodly motivation. Yeah. That is a self-justifying motivation. We can do the most godly things in the most hellish ways right. and that's self-justification right yeah being it, it being done luther said that in his documentary or his um his documentary did that <laughs> i want to see that one uh, his commentary on galatians he said that you know paraphrasing paraphrasing he's talking about the grace of god and christianity is all about the grace of god and sinners being saved by grace and he says this is close to his quote it is that it is that for that precise reason that the world hates Christianity. Wow. And it's such an interesting thing because I immediately am like, yeah. no, you're wrong. Like, I thought that I would think so too. The reason the world hates Christianity is because we're busy telling them what to do. You're, but yeah. he says, no, they hate Christianity because we are telling them that they can't help themselves. And I totally get it now because mm. I go, oh yeah, everyone has a moral standard. Like Christians are not unique in the slightest that we believe in the Ten Commandments, or that we try to uh, communicate to other people that this is how you should live. I mean, the second I say, hey, you shouldn't murder people, if that person turns around to me and says, well, you shouldn't tell me what to do, oh, interesting. We both have a moral standard. Your moral standard is I shouldn't tell you what to do. That's yes. your law. That's one of your Ten Commandments. The whole world and all of our societies operate on some kind of law. We're all out here saying this is what I believe is right and good and, uh, and, and moral, and I think that this is how you should live. And your moral might be that <laughs> I don't have any moral standard and I shouldn't tell anyone what to do. And it's like, oh, right there, when you said that, I shouldn't, I ought not, 
there's your law. There's your moral standard. You don't think you should tell anyone what to do, which means that you think everybody else telling people what to do is wrong. We're all operating on a law. Which validates experientially the law of God written on our hearts. Written on our heart. That's Reality is the way God made the world, spiritual fabric of the universe. God is a moral being. Yes. He's written that in us. We are moral beings. But my point there is to say that what is the rage against Christianity? It can't just be that. Otherwise, that every religion and every person on the planet would get the same amount of rage. Yeah. It's not that. It's that we... we say and by the way you can't help yourself you can't save yourself everyone else says you're wrong on this level and this level and this level do this follow my guide right right you'll be better here's another way here's the yeah christianity says you've broken all the laws and thought word and deed you do it daily and then when when we now ask the natural question okay now what do i do to be saved we go well, there was this guy once who did everything for you. So acknowledge that you are worth hopeless mm-hmm. and believe in him. Luther says for that reason, that's why people just rage because they go, there's nothing for me to do. Yeah. Nothing for you to do. Well, okay. I believe this. You know, I know what Christians are even asking in response. Well, hold on. If it's already, it's already done. Then kind of what you said, like, why should I, how do you I know, live? How do I live? Like, why should I obey Jesus at all? Yeah. And the answer, it's so obvious. It's like the missing glasses on top of our head. Because you love him, you know? And that's where it can get a little dicey when people start to go, I've been living the Christian life and I'm realizing my motivations have not been love for him. Yeah. And they go, man, do I love him at all? Here's the good news, the bad news and the good news. The bad news is, you love him a lot less than you thought. Yeah. In fact, there are parts of you that hate him yep. and rage against him. <coughs> Here's the good news. He forgives you for even that. It's done. It's still done. Yeah. Even as you sit there and you realize, oh my gosh, I've been doing all of this out of fear of punishment. Yep. I don't even really like him. How about, yes, how about like you actually realize that, that Jesus loved God for you? Yeah. So it's so okay. Now, you can admit that too. You're okay. It's okay. You can admit I don't that's love your God. justification. Yeah, that's what that means. That's how practical it is. I mean, right now, think about like what area of your life do you most struggle with, and have you ever wondered why you haven't been able to actually get through it or around it or seen any sort of like movement with it? Perhaps, perhaps the reason is this: that you haven't seen that Jesus was righteous in that area for you. And when that happens, it takes the pressure off because you're not going to be able to fix it. You're not going to be able to change it. But when you realize that uh, that is a sin that he was cursed for, so he's taken the punishment that you're so afraid of in that area away from you, and that he actually like was, let's say if it's some sexual sin, he was sexually pure for you, the pressure's off. Mm-hmm. And now you're like amazed and maybe... Maybe you're like the woman that was at Jesus's feet, just cannot believe that you've been forgiven so much and cannot believe that he has achieved for you a righteousness that you can only receive. Mm -hmm. And now you love him. And now you're not, as one of our favorite theologians says, you're no longer a Hoover vacuum cleaner. You're no longer going through life sucking because you have this 
insatiable void in your life, this God-shaped, God-sized hole in your life that you're constant. everything is being sucked into it. Well, now you're no longer a, a vacuum cleaner. Mm-hmm. You now are a lover. Mm-hmm. You now love things. You now can love life. You can love, you can love whatever gifts and talents you have. You can love the work that you've been given to do, and you can love God. Mm-hmm. That, I would put before you, is real holiness. Mm-hmm. That, I would say, is real godliness. That is how you live. Yeah. Yeah, what do I do now? It's done. Love God. How do I love God? Follow the law. He told you how. But I can't. We know. Go back to Jesus. You know? Yeah. He did it for you. All right. Hopefully this is helpful. Until next time.